Welcome to Two Lips and One Like. You're joined by Anna and Cushy, two 20-something bullshit bitches who talk too much about work, feminism, and news. So it's been a really long time since we've caught up, since the election, in fact. So I was just thinking, just as a recap, what's been the best and the worst of your week? Wow. Okay. That involves a lot of reflection. Well, um, you can choose one or the other if you like. Maybe I'll choose the more politically correct option. All right. Um, so things have been quite complicated on both the professional and personal front. Um, but from a personal standpoint, um, as you and probably most of our listeners are aware, at least the ones that know me. Yeah, the five listeners. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're not that bad. Um, so I've been going through the peaks and troughs of basically, um, being on and off with my ex, I suppose. Is that the way to put it? Sex with the ex. Sex with the ex. <laughs> I hope my parents are not listening to this. <laughs> I really hope so. Um, yeah, so without going into the unnecessarily nitty-gritty details, um, so this is my long-term ex with whom I've sort of just been on and off in terms of contact and communication and we most recently reconnected at the end of last year, which you probably <laughs> recall in a lot of detail. I do. Trying to advise me out of making really irresponsible decisions. Um, so, yeah, the last few weeks have been particularly difficult because for the time that we were together, we were always long distance. Um, he is originally from Victoria, though, so he does visit from time to time. And essentially he came down for a couple of days and the whole time that he was here, it was a case of will I see him, won't I see him, and then getting like unjustifiably excited when I thought I would be seeing him. Um, The conclusion of all that was that I did not see him, um, which was a bit anticlimactic and a bit disappointing. And then went through a couple of days where I essentially thought I was being ghosted So for any of you who have been through the horrible experience that is ghosting, I definitely sympathise and now empathise with you. Ghosting is just rude. Like, you know, just on a very manners perspective of things, like, have you no manners? I know. Well, do you remember that time when I briefly went back on Tinder and then you set me up with that guy who ended up ghosting me? He was a cop. He was a cop. Another reason (laughs) not to trust cops. (laughs) That was a joke. That was the worst. That was was the worst. Yeah. So, I mean, it turned out that I probably wasn't being ghosted because a couple of days later, my ex did end up responding to my messages. Um, But by that point, I actually got a lot of clarity in terms of what I felt about him and what I felt about us. And it actually ended up resolving really recently, as recently as last night, (laughs) where I kind of just cut things off. And I'm really sort of cautious when I say that because this isn't the first time that I've cut him off um, or cut off contact, but this is the first time that I feel sort of really light about the whole experience. Like I'm not actually feeling really sort of, what's the word? Like Burdened. Yeah, like the first time I cut off contact because I was just so angry and so sad and so disappointed, whereas this time around when we actually were communicating with each other and I was telling him that I wanted to cut off contact, there wasn't any real 
ill will about it. Mm. It was just sort of the natural evolution of things. So, you know, I was able to tell him that I wished him all the best and he was able to tell me he wished me all the best. And there was this sense of closure that definitely wasn't there the first time. So you'd say that would be in the last two weeks you've experienced both the best and the worst. Yeah, pretty much. So I've come full circle now, so I'm excited about what's next. (laughs) What about you? I feel like we've had parallels in terms of like professional experiences recently in terms of going through a bit of a down period. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about it in another episode when we talk about just, you know, navigating the modern workplace. But um, I've had a pretty shit time at work recently, TBH. (laughs) (laughs) Would Um, you like to elaborate? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of it, but Mm -hmm. essentially, you know, it's just gotten to a place where I just don't feel like, you know, I'm learning as much as I used to. Mm. And, you know, you you get experience in a particular place and things happen and structure-wise. And so it just felt pretty depressing for a while. But I think I got another moment of clarity when I was realizing that I'm not going to play the victim in this narrative anymore. And I literally just went out, put a one job interview, um, job application in and got an interview and managed to get that. Mm-hmm. But I was going to say that wasn't the highlight of my week last week, but it was actually going back to my old school and speaking. Like that yeah. was actually the highlight of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it just makes me so like inspired to be around young people. They're mm-hmm. so passionate and much more, into things than what we are like you know mm. there's such little social justice like warriors compared to what I was at that age and just I was really vibing off their like passion and their um you know just the way that they see the world it's so inspiring in their idealism um, and stuff like that speaking about the idealism mm. what really struck me from when you were narrating the whole experience to me was that moment I think it must have been after you gave your speech yeah. where a particular student, yeah. a young female Vietnamese girl, came up to you. And what did she ask you exactly? Like, So uh, just to backtrack, I was giving like a five-minute speech just to kind of about my time there and like the things that I've done since. And, and I think it was supposed to like inspire the youth. But I don't know what they took out of it. Um, I pretty much just taught them to party hard in year 12. Um, <laughs> because that's what you did in year 12. I actually did. I had a very sort of, <laughs> I think, pretty, you know, work hard, play hard mentality. Mm. Um, but the girl who came up to me, she was like in year 9 or year 10, and she was like, are you Vietnamese? And I'm like, uh, yep. <laughs> and then she was just like jumping up and down. She's like, that's so exciting. I'm Vietnamese too and I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. Aww. And I was just like... Like, a part of me was taking it back because I was, like, in my head, well, you can do what you want. Like, you know. Yeah. And then another part of me was, like, have you not seen been around enough people who've been of colour or of, mm. you know, other backgrounds um, who want to do the same thing you want to do? Like, mm. yeah, it just really took me aback. It was kind of upsetting, actually, that, um, you know, people don't – we're not at the forefront, like, of everyone. Like, you know, when yeah. they trot out, like, you know um, – football superstars to do these school talks and stuff like that. They're often, you know, from quite privileged backgrounds and they're, you know, white. Young, Australian, male, yeah, male yeah. yeah. And, you know, all of that is unattainable. But when I was mm. that age, I would have loved to have been, and I wasn't inspired by anyone. I don't know why I chose to be a lawyer, but mm. I would have loved to have had someone with that clarity and that sort of investment in my future. Yeah. I mean, growing up, I never really came across any women of colour that also happened to be lawyers. 
But I do recall there being women that would come to the school, um, usually quite accomplished. Well, you said Julia politics. Gillard came to your yeah. school. Um, yeah, we were lucky enough to have the former Prime Minister Julia oh. Gillard come to our school and speak about her experience of being a woman in politics. And that was definitely really inspiring and really motivating to see a woman there. But I know it also would have made a difference had I seen a woman of colour there because obviously even though the experiences mirror each other in some respects, there are definitely some challenges you come across being a woman of colour that you wouldn't experience being a white woman, for example. And kids are what they see. Like, mm. you know, if they're not seeing you around, this is why all this conversation, and we'll get to it shortly, but about representation, about quotas, mm. about our political system, they matter because that's modelling what it is to the next generation and what they're going to, like, what they see in Parliament. It's so they can envision themselves being there. Yeah. If there's no space for them there or perception that there's no space, then they're not going to try. Yeah, and just on that point, um, I remember a couple of years ago when I went to visit um, my now ex, we just referenced before, um, I went to visit him in a remote Indigenous community and I spent a couple of days at the school that he worked at and I remember that the students were asked to draw pictures of what they wanted to be when they were older and there was this particular Aboriginal girl who was just kind of sitting silently stewing away and not really knowing what to do and so I thought oh okay I'll indulge in a bit of conversation here and hopefully get her doing something and so I asked her what she wanted to be when she was older and she kind of just you know shifted awkwardly mm. and then eventually said to me well I know what I want to be but I can't be it and I said well what do you want to be and then she's like I want to be a police officer and I was like kind of puzzled because I said, well, why can't you be a police officer? And she's like, because only the white folks get to be cops. Oh, that breaks my heart. I know. And it just goes to your point about how important that representation is. Like, obviously, mm. this girl had never seen an Aboriginal person being yeah. a police officer. And so she'd kind of just already sort of, you know, narrowed her prospects. And she was like maybe eight or nine years old. I want to take her to see Top End Wedding. <laughs> I there know. There was that awesome cop in that. Yeah. The I concert. mean, I hope that's changed. But, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. All right. So the last time that we were here, we <laughs> may have said some comments that we now laugh on. In relation to the election. So Ugh. just to recap, we had just voted when we recorded our last podcast. Mm -hmm. And I vaguely remember us saying, oh, yeah, whatever. It's the most boring election ever. Yep. Because we all thought we knew what the election result was going to be. So the <laughs> aftermath of that was essentially that the Liberal Party retained leadership by quite a significant number. Mm. There's been a number of analyses and a lot of, you know, um, thought and column space that's gone into why did Labour lose so badly? And so what are your reflections on the election? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I was like most Australians. I was just stunned in shock. Like, I was in my apartment just watching everyone else stunned in shock and just trying to reflect. And so I feel like I've been through all the stages of grief. Oh, my God. You know, I've got a funny story about that. On the night, I was feeling it was like 9 o'clock. I'd been to see a play just before. Mm. And I was feeling really depressed because I just looked at um, the just the polling and mm. it, it didn't look very good. And so I went to McDonald's in East Melbourne. 
And guess who I bumped into? Who? Michael O'Brien. Oh, and his whole family were there. And he was teaching them, like, you know, um, Christina Wentworth and all that stuff. But I was just like, oh, my God, what are the <laughs> But also, like, ouch. I know. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty bleak night. And even, I think, the days and weeks following, I was still kind of processing exactly what had happened. So... I pretty much tried to, like, read anything and everything I could mm. about, like, the post-election analysis, you know, when everyone's trying to figure out what the answers are and do can you, we trust the polls and all of that. Do you feel like this was our Trump moment? Yeah, I mean, I think complacency breeds negativity. Like, mm. and to be honest, I was really complacent. Yeah, you were. Cause, and even, like, our close friend who's in London at the moment, she mm. couldn't vote because um, there was some issue, but... She was just like, oh, well, you know. Yeah, what difference will it make anyway? Next minute <laughs> made a huge difference. I yeah. think the thing that, for me, that really depressed me was the notion of the quiet Australian mm-hmm. and the realisation for me that the quiet Australian is not necessarily the same Australian I was thinking of or the same Australian that I am. Mm-hmm. And so just to recap, um, in his victory speech, Scott Morrison talked about, like, this is a victory for Australia. How great is Australia? Praise Jesus. <laughs> He might have actually said that. No, he did say something like, um, this is a miracle. Um, And he was saying that this is a victory for all the quiet Australians, those who work and toil really hard and all they want to do is, you know, um, get a good education, get a job, settle down, have a mortgage, retire peacefully. Mm -hmm. And um, that was really daunting for me because it's the moment that I realised that we don't, as Australians, we've lost that sort of um, social justice angle that I, I guess perhaps in previous times, like even in like Kevin Rudd, those years, like there was a focus on that. And even during like Julie Gillard years, there was a focus on the NDIS, Royal Commissions and, you know, things that were a bit more, less than that myopic view of the world and what can I benefit out of my family. I mean, we were just bitching about tax recently and mm-hmm. how, it is absurd that the both of us are going to be entitled to, you know, a thousand dollars. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. It's like a little over a thousand dollars. And you did, what did that ABC thing that you did? Oh yeah. So, um, so this is referencing the coalition's like tax package, um, which we really should be praising for, but really like, yeah, I mean, we both stand to personally benefit from the reforms taking place but at the expense of people that are earning a lot less than us and that are a lot more in need of those funds. Um, but, yeah, like the ABC had this calculator where you could essentially type in your gross salary and then it would calculate the amount of the refund you would be entitled to under this package. And so just out of curiosity, I entered in my income from my previous job, which was significantly less than my current job, mm. and I stood to gain so much more, earning so much more. Does that make sense? I guess that makes sense because you're paying more tax. Is that Correct. how it's just? I mean, that's how, yeah, people will justify it. But you're paying more tax because you can afford to pay more tax mm. because you're earning more money. But I think we're moving away from that model now. I feel like this election victory and everyone pressing the government to pass through these tax reforms urgently for this um, financial year, mm. it um, sort of signifies that we're not, you know, your notion of tax is different to everyone else's, which is how much can I milk out of my tax? I don't know. I'm quite a hopeless idealist in this respect. Like, Mm. 
definitely my knee-jerk reaction after the election was to be like fucking selfish, you know, rich pricks just voting for whatever's in their self-interest, blah, blah, blah. I feel like I'm still there a little bit. Mm, But when you read a lot of the breakdown of the um, election results, Mm. what's really striking to me is the fact that by and large – the people that actually won the coalition, the election, mm-hmm. were the people that actually stood or stand to lose the most from a coalition government. So it wasn't like your multi-millionaires that... Actually, that's true. My parents voted for Liberal. And yeah. And, like, a lot of your regional voters, especially mm-hmm. in Western Australia and in Queensland, are the ones that stand to be affected the most by, you know, the environmental degradation or um, the franking credits and all the rest of this. So the fact that the people that won the coalition, the election, are the people that stand to lose the most from the government tells me that the outcome is probably more reflective of the fact that the Labor Party just did a really shitty job at actually selling its policies. So the thing about the Labor Party's policies, and and I think Waleed Ali did this really good breakdown about how the distinction between the two parties, and he did this in the project before the election happened, but he was saying, with Labor, it's a very ambitious policy agenda. It was 308 Mm -hmm. pages Mm -hmm. of pure policy, Mm -hmm. talking about very wide-ranging reforms in areas of environment, health spending, um, and education spending and all these things, right? Mm. And so, and including those reforms you talked about that were quite controversial, which were franking credits, mm-hmm. and um, what was the other? There was some really big, scary one, negative gearing. Yeah, that was the other right. one. So those were very big, mm. big, ambitious projects compared to the coalition that had a pretty like an incumbent attitude to the election, which is don't stir the boat a bit too much. Mm. And I don't even know what their policies were, but they obviously worked. This tax reform, that was Mm -hmm. one of them. And I can't remember anything else. Negative gearing. By and large, it was a fear campaign. That's what I mean. That was targeted at that ambitious policy agenda that you talk about. So, you know, it's one thing to have a really ambitious and positive policy agenda, but it's another thing to be able to bring people on side and actually sell that agenda to them. And that's where I really feel like the Labor Party really fell short. So you think it was too radical too soon? No, no, not at all. I think it wasn't radical enough. (laughs) Um, What I think was really lacking was that the Labor Party wasn't able to build this broad consensus of voters that actually realised that those policies were in their interest. Mm. Um, so every single time you saw, like, a Clive Palmer ad or a Liberal Party ad that, you know, targeted one of these Labor Party policies, I didn't really hear much from the Labor Party. Mm. Like, they never got on the front foot and said, hey, actually, franking credits, this is our policy and this is why it's going to benefit you. There was none of that. It was just really muted. And so it meant that, Mm. you know, the loudest voices, which were your Clive Palmer's and your Liberal Party, kind of carried, like, the votes on the day. So, yeah, yeah, so I am definitely more idealistic about the future. I think – and what really scares me is that I'm worried that Labor is going to take the lesson that actually we can't afford to be this ambitious and this radical when actually – 
all they need to do is do a much better job in actually building the consensus they need to get their policy agenda up. I also really share that concern because I feel like, I don't know, there's something in politics at the moment that's just very conservative leaning Mm. and not rocking the boat. And already we had complained about Labor being very boring. Moving to the centre. Moving to the centre, but also boring in opposition. Like, they weren't offering anything different. Like, I remember in the heyday, and this is before I could vote, but during Kevin 07, it seemed like there was this period of like spirit and Mm. inspiration and you know people were genuinely excited about some of the reforms he had he had a climate change agenda he had um, numerous other economic and social reforms in place and like you know um, yeah there was just so much going on that time and we were ready to get rid of John Howard I remember that too I remember um, some of my classmates were wearing Kevin 07 tops and it was just this feeling that I've never had in the entire time I could vote. Yeah, same. Um, That excitement and, you know, bringing together a population. It Mm. almost reminds me a lot of, like, the it's time. Mm. Well, and I'm not reassured by the fact that since the election happened... I can't even remember who the opposition leader is now. um, Anthony Albanese. Oh, Albo. But he hasn't been particularly um, encouraging in the sense that, you know even these most recent tax reforms that have come through, Labor just ended up folding. Like, Oh, yes, they did too. It yes, did. that's right. Like, basically, the coalition said, well, if you're not going to support our package in its entirety, then we're going to withdraw the package altogether, which means that everyone misses out on a tax cut. And instead of Labor standing its ground and saying, no, we refuse to support this tax package because it disproportionately favours the rich over the poor... They said, oh, shit, do we really want to be seen again as that party that's not supporting tax cuts? Oh, okay, let's just back down. And, like, I'm sorry, but, and I'm someone who's only generally voted Liberal Greens, but I have to say that I've lost a lot of respect for the Labor Party. And I just... I think they don't know where they stand now, though, because they're kind of trying to, like grasp at all the ends you know like they want to get the conservative trend um the conservative people in Mm. like rural australia obviously big vote they also want to get you know the inner city latte sippers and they also want to get this and that and like i think they've just got their tentacles all over the joint and so they don't know where they stand because they're essentially a populist party like Mm -hmm. they you know, are espousing a lot of, like, just think of the immigration policy, for instance. It's a lot of things, it's encapsulating a lot of the sentiment that has been around the Australian discourse for the last decade. Yeah, and, like, listen, like, I know one of the tenets of representative government is that you need to reflect the views of the people, but part of your role of being a representative is also to inspire the people, and sometimes that means taking a stand that isn't always the populist stand. And I just feel like Labor is so caught up in these tentacles that you talked about where they're just trying to, like, get every single vote they can that they've actually just lost a sense of who they are mm. and what actually was, you know, the basis for, like, forming the Labor Party. Like, their base, the working-class voter, is the reason why they're not in government. And, and they've lost them. Like, they've lost them. People if, like my parents. Yeah. If that doesn't send alarm bells their way, I don't know what else will. So So what do you think this means for Australia for the next three years? It's going to be a really long three years. <laughs> I think it might even be another plus four. It, 
Possibly, yeah. I mean, again, complacency breeds negativity, Mm. so I'm never ever going to be complacent again. I do think ScoMo is actually quite popular. Yeah, I think so. I think, in part, the Labor Party is responsible for that too. I mean, if the Labor Party doesn't stand for anything, then at least if you look like... Look at someone like even Tony Abbott, okay? Mm, I am man like, of conviction. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Like that is one thing you can definitely say about him, that you know where he stands on issues, even if you don't agree with the stand that he takes. Can you say the same about the Labor Party? I don't even – I had to think about who the leader was. Yeah, Shorten. the fact that you have to think about that, that's indicative of a big problem. And if they really do want to remain one of the major parties, then, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of soul-searching to do over the next three years and hopefully they take the right lessons out of the experience but early signs aren't that reassuring to be honest well let's compare this to someone we did see earlier this week so Jacinda oh. Ardern New, New Zealand's um, Prime Minister talk about hope and idealism oh, yes so we saw her speak at um, an event that was hosted by Ansog on Thursday mm-hmm. I didn't realize she would come all the way to Australia purely for that speech yeah and then me too flitted other things around it for instance talking about um, New Zealand deportation laws mm. and with um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison but oh, the fact that we deport New Zealand yes yeah, prisoners right yep yep but what is so what were your sort of takeaways from that night um so we had a good debrief after the actual event, but I think on the whole, I found it to be both really heartening and disheartening. So I was heartened by the fact that there was this politician that just seemed really hopeful and really idealistic, but also really pragmatic at the same time mm. about the importance of good governance. Um, so that was the theme of the evening, actually. She was there to speak on why good governance matters. And yeah, she just struck me, A, as just a really kind and compassionate person and that she was somehow able to incorporate those traits into her political leadership as well. Um, it but- must be pretty depressing for her, though, because, like you said, the speech was about what makes good government mm-hmm. and she opened up the speech by talking about why government matters mm-hmm. and the fact that we need to justify that in 2019 is a slightly bit alarming because she was saying mm. a lot of people are put off by government they don't trust government, not realising that government are actually responsible for a lot of the things that we we have and we enjoy in this country. Like, yeah. for instance, water, good healthcare, mm-hmm. um, Medicare, education, things like that. But everyone's become so distrustful of our politicians who are, the you know, the front face of government mm. that there's a, just this sense of mistrust in the community and the fact that we can do it alone, we don't need government, we don't need that cohesion or collectivism. Yeah, and that's what makes her all the more impressive, that by and large she's surrounded by political leaders that have given their citizens good reasons to actually mistrust them. And she was so polite about it too. Like she didn't yeah. throw anyone under the bus, even though you can kind of know who she was alluding to. Yeah, I mean there was a Q&A session after the actual <laughs> speech yeah. involving Virginia Trioli, who love we both her. love, and her. And, like, Virginia Trioli was asking some pretty pointed questions about Donald Trump and, like, his most recent comments on um, a few congresswomen in the States. Going home. Um, Yeah, more or less just being a blatant racist. Um, But I really liked her answer to those probing questions. So she more or less just said, listen, I'm not going to comment on that. And the reason I'm not going to comment on that is because I think minorities are pretty sick and tired of people always speaking on their behalf. So good. And they need to be heard and they need to be listened to, which was basically her communicating that, hey, 
he is a blatant racist because if you do hear and listen to what those women are saying, that's what they're saying. But she didn't try and take and make that moment hers because it's not hers to take and make. Yeah, I thought that was so good because it never happens that way. Um, And usually politicians will try to speak on behalf of a particular, you know, minority group or whatever. Exactly. Even the well-intentioned types will do it. Because it makes Um, it their moment, you know. It makes it like, I'm the good guy here. Yeah. Um, But I guess what made it disheartening was the fact that, and I think we both had this common experience where, you know, we're watching and listening to her speak about all this positivity surrounding governance and all these policy measures that have been introduced specifically in New Zealand. And I couldn't help but contrast everything she was saying about New Zealand with everything that's happening here in Australia. Yes, um, particularly when she was talking about how they're doing an incomplete or an imperfect job of managing their um, first peoples. Oh, yeah, that actually, I got really teary about that. Mm. Um because, you know, she both started and finished her speech by speaking in language. And it wasn't even just token words here and there. Like, she was speaking complete sentences. It was obviously something that she knew and that was kind of embedded in the way she conducted herself. And I honestly cannot imagine Scott Morrison getting up on a stage and speaking in language. Like, not even in a tokenistic fashion. Yeah, I don't think he even knows. I mean, yeah. And it was interesting hearing her speak about, like, um, you know, the interactions between Maori and non-Maori peoples. Like, she conceded that the relationship is by no means perfect and there are issues to address. But it seems like that respect for Maori peoples and Maori culture is really embedded Mm. in the way New Zealanders are. Like, it's sort of something that, you know, they learn at school, they see on TV, they hear on the radio. Mm. And so, yeah, it's not something that you kind of just do, you know, to be politically, you know, correct or something. So, But it has to be embedded. And I guess that's the thing about the difference between mm. Australia and New Zealand is that for us, like, um, our knowledge about Aboriginal history and culture and language is not embedded in our culture. No. It's seen as sort of this tack-on. I mean, by way of contrast, I was watching Q&A last week and the panellists were too busy arguing about whether or not we could even put a preamble acknowledging the traditional owners of the country um, on oh my gosh. in our constitution. And so that's – I think when I left Jacinda Ardern's speech I was really depressed about things like that Mm. because you know we've got this leader saying that they're not perfect and they've still got so far to go and then I compare that to where we are i.e that Q&A moment where (laughs) you know we're struggling to get people to accept the treaty Mm. um, and to accept um, basic levels of recognition like having the preamble like Mm. you know that's so basic it's not going to do anything and we have our politicians saying it's not going to do anything by having that preamble in, so we're not going to even talk about it. And it's like, well, it might not mean anything to you, but it mean, it's a symbolism and it means yeah. something to other people. And if we're still arguing over those sorts of symbolic steps, then what does that say about actually taking substantive steps to actually, you know, address real inequalities affecting, like, our first peoples? Um, so, yeah, I think definitely that comparing and contrasting between New Zealand and Australia was super depressing. But then also I was just, again, really heartened and inspired by the fact that, you know, she's this one person that's been able to build such a broad consensus because she's not in a majority parliament. She barely scraped into power 
and she's got some real loony tunes in her parliament. But she's been able to, like, and this just goes to show what an effective negotiator mm. she is, but she's been able to build this real coalition of different parties with different interests to achieve real progress. Right. Like, mm. So maybe, you know, our <laughs> Jacinda Ardern is somewhere out there and maybe we will also have, like, a shift like that that's taking place in New Zealand. Like, you know, one can only hope. All right, let's take us on to recommendations and take us home. <laughs> the light portion of our podcast. I know, I feel like we go too deep. <laughs> um, so let me start. I'm mm-hmm. going to start with Breaking Badly by Geordie Dent. Which, yes. Um, You've talked about this book a lot to me. I know, I've talked about it so much. So pretty much I became obsessed with Georgie Dent when, like a number of years ago when I was going through my own nervous breakdown. I just literally Googled 25-year-old nervous breakdown. And her article from Women's Agenda came up. And so she wrote about her struggles with dealing with um, like chronic health conditions like Crohn's disease, endometriosis, and it all culminated in a moment where she was working at Minters and um, she had this vertical spell and she just fell and she couldn't get up and she couldn't get up for three months. So she had to leave her job, go home, work, um, live with her mum and dad and she was essentially bedridden. And so the book is really interesting because it journals, you know, all these complicated parts of, like, medicine and how Mm. the medicine, like, everyone works in silos, essentially. And they couldn't pinpoint it because each of these specialties were were treating the symptoms of their particular specialty. So, for instance, her gastroenterologist doing the Crohn's stuff would be focusing on all those physical symptoms and then her um, gynecologist would be focusing on endo and doing all these really invasive surgeries for her mm. and then um, she had to see neurologists and all this stuff for her vertigo but no one nothing cured her like she was still not functioning very well until she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital um, and she, she had a stint there and that's where she was diagnosed with anxiety and given medication for that and given treatment and therapies to deal with that and that was the moment that her physical symptoms went away and so The reason why it's my recommendation is because of that connection between body and mind, which is something I've never appreciated until my body was becoming completely dysfunctional and out of my control. Mm. And I couldn't control basic bodily functions. And it's something similar to what she talks about. Like um, at my worst, I was suffering from bad um, irritable bowel syndrome, which has really like unsexy symptoms. Um, But she was talking about like, you know, her 10-minute journey from home to work, she could literally plot all the toilets along the way. And that's something that I've had to do. Wow. And there have been moments in my life where I was like, is this what my life's limited to? Like, can I never – I can never do advocacy work because I'm, like, bound by this prison of a body that, mm. you know, is unpredictable and I can't do particular jobs because of my body. Mm. Um, but I think her book is – it shows that, you know – the mental stuff it really matters and that and luckily for her it's sort of been a bit of a I wouldn't say cure but a treatment at the very least for her Mm. so I recommend the book I also recommend the interviews that she's done so she did one that I told you to listen to yes I listened to that yesterday so she did an interview on the shameless podcast that is essentially a promo for her book and she yeah recounts a lot of these pivotal experiences that you talk about um, about working at the firm and about having these chronic health conditions and her experience in the psychiatric ward. And 
yeah, again, something that was really sort of heartening as well to kind of be like, wow, I mean, talk about the complete trifecta, like, you know, like I've got pre-endo, but to think that someone would be experiencing endometriosis, Crohn's disease, vertigo, and then that kind of manifests into this like crippling anxiety, like and to see her come out on the other side, that's, yeah, really heartening to see. What are your recommendations for the week? I have a couple of recommendations. Some of these are a bit dated just because it's taken us a little while to actually record this episode. Right. So maybe I'll just pick and choose. Um, so in the way of books, um, I would be recommending Sally Rooney's two books, Normal People in Conversations with Friends. So apparently Sally Rooney is this cult figure and apparently every 20-something-year-old girl has either read one or both of her books. Yep, I only recently discovered her, and I could not put either of these books down. Um, in short, her books are a summation of modern relationships and just the things that people say, do, and feel. And I know that doesn't sound like a particularly exciting premise um, for a book, but she does it in a way that just really resonates. And up until recently, like I was still communicating with my ex and there were just certain experiences that literally just mirrored mine to a T. So is this in conversation with friends and normal people? Because I've got conversations um, with friends here. So I had moments like that in both of the books. I read Conversations with Friends first and unlike most people, I actually preferred that book, maybe in part because it resonated more. I'm really hoping because I, controversial opinion, mm. did not enjoy normal people as much as the hype. Yeah, maybe that's part of the problem. Like, yeah. see, I mean, I knew she was this cult figure, but I hadn't really spoken to anyone in depth about her books. So even though I know that the books were popular, I didn't really mm. know what to expect from them. Um, and, again, I think a lot of my enjoyment of the books did come from my personal, you know, ability to, like, relate to what was going on. Um now, I also know that some people don't particularly like the way that she writes. Like, I know she has this habit of not using quotation marks. I've had to get used to it because I'm reading Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. Oh, and that's no, the same thing. Yeah. See, that didn't bother me in the slightest. It did I didn't me. even notice it until Nick and you pointed yeah, it out to me. it irritated us. Um, but yes, I would definitely recommend that book for just someone that's especially still dating or someone that's single. Um, yeah, a lot of the experiences resonated. Um, and probably the other um, thing I would want to recommend is a podcast. And actually, I feel like you should be doing the recommendation because the only reason I listen to this podcast is because you recommended it. Mm. Um, it's called Love Etc. <laughs> and is it by the same girls that do Shameless? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's a podcast. There have only been a couple of episodes so far. But as the title suggests, again, it's about love, modern relationships. And obviously, I have a habit of listening to and reading things on the same theme. But, yeah, similarly, I was really able to relate to a lot of the experiences that these women were encountering, um, especially the first episode, which is all about heartbreak and sort of the different stages that you go through when experiencing heartbreak, whether it's in the context of, like, a long-term serious relationship or what they like to colloquially refer to as a situationship. I love that they were <laughs> like, do you need to get under someone to get over another? What was the conclusion? I think some of the girls I interviewed were like, definitely get under someone. Yeah. I mean, I tried that. <laughs> I don't know if it worked. But anyway, um, yeah. But yeah. I thought it was 
good listening because um, when I listened to it, we were driving somewhere and I was like, this is cushy all over. <laughs> like, she should listen to this. She is a mess. <laughs> no, because it's reflective in their experiences too. You're not the only one with that sort of toing and froing situationship yeah. that develops. I love that word, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really reflective of what modern mm. relationships are like. Um, so, yeah, on the one hand, it is really reassuring. On the other hand, it also just gives you a really different perspective. So, like, for example, when I was reading Conversations with Friends, um, there were certain interactions between the two main characters where I would be like, what is this girl doing? Why does she not have more self-respect? She needs and wants and deserves so much better than what she's getting. And then those experiences would mirror my experiences, but I wouldn't, like, lend myself that same sort of, like, compassion. Mm. Like, I never thought, well, do I need better? Do I want better? Do I deserve better? But seeing someone else go through it kind of gives you that perspective. You know, I'd suggest you listen to the most recent episode of Love Etc because it talks about cheating, which I know is not Mm. something that, um, you know, necessarily all of us may have encountered or experienced or done. Mm. But it had three different perspectives on it, like someone who'd been cheated on, someone who was – in a relationship with someone who was in a relationship, so, like, kind of the the mistress, if you call it that, and then someone who had cheated. And I think, you know, you think about a concept like cheating and it's so easy to demonise people Mm. and to think that they're horrible, horrible people. Mm. But um, putting the voice to it really made me think a bit more. That's really interesting. Yeah, Yeah, because, you know, most of my interactions with family and friends would result in that kind of demonising that you're talking about, that... You're the good person, they're the bad person, the end. When actually the reality of it is a lot more nuanced and a lot more complex. And also I think if you're talking to your family and friends, they're acting in that particular way because they've got only your interests. Yeah. Whereas I think like these shameless girls, they have to be objective. That's Mm. the purpose of their little show. As journalists. I didn't know that. Get on it. I'm I'm addicted to love, etc. I'll have a listen. Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. We will endeavour to record something a bit sooner rather than like three months afterwards. We've spent too much money on these mics to not justify recording more frequently. Yeah, so (laughs) definitely another episode will be coming up soon in our busy, busy schedules. See you guys.